What's up, everyone, and welcome to The Corporate Bartender. You know I said last time that the killer episodes just keep piling up? It's true. They do. And today's episode is just cracking. Cracking what? Cracking the leadership code. We're talking about connection, communication, and collaboration. And we've got Ella Hunkins on the program today, and the conversation is pretty darn epic. If you don't know Alain, no worries, we've got you covered. He's a facilitator, coach, and leadership expert with decades of experience. He's also the author of Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. This conversation was fantastic, and I think you're going to dig it. So buckle up, TC Beers, grab your favorite cocktail, and let's get right on into it with Alain Hunkins on today's TCB. Welcome to Sky Team's The Corporate Bartender, where we gather some of the best HR and people leaders to discuss what's happening on the people side of business. Now pull up a stool, belly up to the bar, and join us for The Corporate Bartender. All right, welcome everybody. It is Wednesday, it's your favorite day and mine. It is Corporate Bartender Day. It is the 19th of July, 2023, and the 174th time we've convened this group of awesome people. I know. Let's celebrate that, shall we? That's a little preview, Alan, because when we introduce you, we're going to dance you on, because that's how we do it here. Perfect. <laughs> Today's 174 is my favorite number, too. See? <laughs> It was your number. It was your number in football when you were a kid, right? Oh, this shit is starting to pile up already. Let me try my pointers. I love it. Today's going to be a fun day. We've got a guest on the show. We've got Alan Hunkins. He is the author of this book right here, "Cracking the Leadership Code." And I love books that have numbers in the title. Three secrets to building strong leaders. Um, so we're going to ask him to share the secrets with us and uh, share a little bit about, about why that book and what makes that book different than all the gajillion of other boring business books out there on the market today. Speaking of boring business books, hey, here's one. It's called You, Me, We, Why We All Need a Friend at Work and How to Show Up as One. And I keep asking, even when Morag isn't here, I ask the question, Please, if you have not purchased your copy, do so. And if you have, do us a favor and write us a review on Amazon because we are creeping steadily towards some sort of magical number. 100 reviews is magic and it changes the algorithm. I don't know what happens. I think it's just they're saying that to me to keep me interested in <laughs> pimping for reviews. We've got some guests upcoming We've got Jeff Eschleman on August 9th. He is a coach who has a framework for helping executives create a lifestyle where success and harmony coexist. So I'm looking forward to digging into that. Getting into September, we've got Dr. Brian Smith, the author of Positive Influence, Be the I in Team. I'm interested in this because the only, the only, uh, the only uh, picture I've ever seen exemplifying what the I in team is, I use it in some workshops. Uh -huh. um, it shows team written in block letters and it says, there it is. There's the I in team. It's yep. trapped in the A hole because it's in the <laughs> inside of the A. Yeah. You can bet I'll be including that image when Brian's on the show. <laughs> and then this show, I am super excited about this on September 13th. Buki Musaku is going to be here, and he's the author of a book called I Don't Understand, Navigating Unconscious Bias in the Workplace. But the hook that interested me was the research that he's done on reverse bias. Hmm. Right? So reverse bias, thinking about when a minority misinterprets unfavorable decisions or behaviors as unconscious bias when they're not. Like... Presuming a potential client or colleague has a problem with your accent. Mm. When in reality, it's you that are nervous about your own accent. Um, when a minority sees unconscious discrimination at not being shortlisted, 
when simply they didn't meet the, the requirements, right? So all these things that we've talked about um, in all of the DE and I conversations that we've had here, um, I got the pitch on this one and I was like, those are questions that I would never ask. Mm-hmm. And he has created a lane in which he's done research and is excited to talk about it. He's located in the UK. So when I when I responded to his publicist, I said, hey, we do the show kind of live and it's at four o'clock and that's 11 p.m. in the UK. Is he down for doing something like that? And he is. So he's going to be late night in it with us here on September 13th. So looking forward so to that. He'll be already be drunk when he gets to the bar. Excellent. Even better. <laughs> Even better. Even better. All right. So today we've got our guest. His name is Alan Hunkins. Will you say your name for us? Because I know we all struggle with trying to say your Belgian name. You say it so well, though, Eric. That Do was I? Really, I? I was just thinking that was really quite well said. Yeah, Alain, you said it really well. There's I've been really, practicing. You, it shows. It shows. You're <laughs> polished. It's great. It's Alain. And if anyone ever wants to, needs a brush up, just go to my LinkedIn profile. There's an audio tutorial. Uh, I, repeat, I repeated about three times there. And that should, that should take care of you. Yeah, it, it's a totally common French name. My mom is a French speaking, uh, first language is French. She grew up in Belgium. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have an older brother named Serge. These are very common names. Not so common here. That's all. Yeah. That's right. Ellen and Scott would be your names here. Probably. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, let's welcome Ally Hunkins here to the bartender with the dance on. You got the preview. You knew it was coming. <laughs> it's time to do the dance on. So say thank you for being with us today. We are so excited to have you here. I've had the book for a while um, and I've used it. We're actually using it in a couple of programs. You're going to be a special master class facilitator for us on a couple of programs. So super stoked about it. I love it. Um, so I want to get into that with you. Mm-hmm. But before we get into any of that current content type stuff, um, I don't imagine that as a wee child, you said, when I grow up, I want to be a leadership expert, executive coach, and I want to write a book about cracking the leadership code. Mm-hmm. So what did you want to be and how the hell did you get here? What a good question. What did I want to be? Yeah, it wasn't that for sure. <laughs> um, how do you know, it's interesting because, you know, I think if I look back, I can connect the dots. Certainly when I was moving through it all, there was a lot of let's try the next thing and the next thing. So if I rewind the tape to mix metaphors and follow that thread, um, I'd say <laughs> I, I'd say the common denominator. That's the third analogy in that one time, <laughs> is, um, just to keep you on your toes here today. Um, the, the common denominator is I've always been really fascinated by people. Um, what makes people tick? and what makes people tick better in certain situations than in other situations. Um, I guess, and if I had to like trace it way back, I think it has a lot to do with somewhat of my unique backstory as a child. I mean, we all have our own unique challenges and stories. As, and, and so mine, you know, so I grew up in New York City, not particularly unique, was raised by a single mom and my grandmother, also not particularly unique. The part where it gets, I think, a little bit more flavorful and interesting is the fact that both my mother and my grandmother are Holocaust survivors. My mother's born in 1935 in Belgium. So during the Holocaust, when the Nazis invaded Belgium, my mom is six and a half years old. And my mom was taken and separated from her mother and put into hiding through the Belgian underground with a woman that she had never met and spent the next three and a half years wow. in hiding, given a false name, had her hair dyed blonde. Wow. She was in a convent for a while. I mean, she said, she said, I was the best Catholic in the whole convent. I learned my prayers well. And amazingly, her and her mother both survived the war. My grandmother was actually imprisoned in a concentration camp and was liberated right at the end of the war in Belgium. They were reunited, but my, my mother's father, my grandmother's husband, was killed in the war. Most of the family was killed. Mm-hmm. And I share all that as backstory in that those were my primary parents. And as you can imagine, going through such a traumatic experience completely shaped their worldview. Mm-hmm. Not to mention there was a certain kind of like inextricable, like survival fear-based link that my grandmother had with my mother in that sense of like not ever wanting to let her go after yeah. that, which 
is one thing to understand. I think all of us can see that from a distance. It's kind of challenging when that's your mom and your grandmother trying to raise you in New York City in the 1970s and 80s. So all of which to say is what I noticed is that, uh, and I and at the time, I felt it more than I could have cognitively understood it. What I felt was there was a very different vibe at home than there was anywhere else. There was a very different vibe at my friends' houses. There was a very different vibe. I loved school because school, there was structure, there was order. You do certain things, you get good grades. I was a great student because that everything made sense. Whereas at home, I'd come in the door. I'd never know who was going to, which version of my grandmother was going to show up. Mm -hmm. Was it going to be the one who's completely quiet? Was it the one who's going to rage? And again, no harm on, I understand yeah. why she comes by it honestly, right? I mean, sure. and so I think for me, so I was, I, as is often the case, if you, and I've met many other you know, second generation ch children of children survivors, and there's this sense that you grow up really fast and you also become kind of this old person. That, like at the age of three and four, I'm thinking about this stuff because even though it's not being spoken about, there's this implicit understanding that you should be grateful for your life and like just these deep things. So like, so for me, you know, it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be happy. I want to be peaceful. I want to, like it was just like these kind of profound ideas, right? As opposed to like I want to play for the Yankees. You know? right. It wasn't like you know in some ways. Um, and so my journey then took me. And interestingly, my father, my my folks split up when I was one. My dad's family were all professional musicians, and I became a violinist at the age of five. And I was really involved with orchestras. I went to the High School of Music and Art in New York City as a violinist, and then I went on to college and I got involved in theater and acting. And I ended up going to a graduate acting conservatory, which is an interesting thing. I think if you ever get a chance, go to acting school, because it forces you to put yourself kind of under the microscope in terms yeah. of really taking apart, dissecting human behavior. If you think about mm -hmm. characters, actors, mm -hmm. characters in a play or a movie, you're trying to play someone else. So understanding like you can work that from the outside in, that is like from the body, the gesture, the voice, or you can work it from the inside out, the psychology motivation. So just studying all of that really connected to people. And then along the way, while I was in grad school, one of my uh, classmates went off and did this training, this kind of experiential training weekend. And he came back and was a very different person. And watching him over the next two years, his name is John. And I thought, I need to do whatever John did. And I went off on this training and it kind of blew my mind. And it was like very empowering. Um, and it sort of, for me, it became this touch point of, oh, this feeling of I'm going to use the word again, empowerment, the sense of, oh, I can make choices. And I think for me, it was kind of stripping away the veil of unconsciousness that as humans, we have the power to choose how we want to be. You know, one of my favorite quotes comes from Viktor Frankl, which you, probably, you all know, uh, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, you know, and in it, Frankel writes, you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is your power to choose. And in that choice lies your freedom. So for me, I guess, at its core, what I'm really motivated by is how can I help people to kind of unlock their potential and find more of the spaces, more of the freedom so that we can have more vibrant, alive agency in our lives. Sometimes that's in a for-profit corporational setting. Sometimes it's in a not for, it's all over the place. So my why is ultimately, I want to create a more vibrant and alive world by kindling the fire of brilliance in all people. And uh, I just think that we are all capable of so much. Mm -hmm. And so I want to help tease out more of what's inside. I love that. That's, I, have that's... To, I have to write down kindling the fire of brilliance. <laughs> I just did. It's like, oh, I love how um, your experience with music and theater and acting um, helped like that lens of understanding behavior. And, you know, we also often hear of industrial psychology or therapy sure. or, you know, yeah, all yeah. kinds of behavioral science and, and research right? Very pervasive and, and valid, but wow, that experiential um, yeah. embodying of behaviors and characteristics. And that, that's a, that's a whole different way to understand mm -hmm. human it behavior is. and motivation. It's a, it's a whole different, and I love that you brought that up, Lori, too, because I would say another kind of wrinkle in this thing, if you think about, you know, when so often, you know, one of the buzzwords that we use so much in organizational settings is engagement, right? Like talk about whether that's customer engagement or employee engagement and this, this holy grail, like, and how engagement shows all these other different um, 
performance metrics. And to me, if you think about the performing arts, if you think about when you buy a ticket to see a rock concert or an opera or a play or a musical or a movie for that matter, what are you paying for? You are paying to be engaged. And the entire craft of the arts is to engage you for every single moment from the moment the curtain goes up until it goes down. And even sometimes before and after, it is that experience that you're having. And if you think about just how in the business world the bar for engagement is so god awful low right just just it just <laughs> is up. it just <laughs> is like you show up like hey it's like you know it's just because it's a different mindset mm-hmm. and so there's so much and what's so interesting though is within that is we all live in this you're probably familiar with the work of um I forget Pine and the other author the experience economy right that all the world mm-hmm. is a stage mm-hmm. right this and so this idea is that we've all been immersed in an experience economy and and to the point where, you know, we will pay a premium to be more engaged. And so what are you and your organization doing to make sure you're taking all the dead places out, right? Because if you think about what we do in rehearsal and the performing arts is you, whether you work a song or you work a script and you rehearse, you rehearse to get it flawless, to take the boring bits out. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately too much of business leaves the boring bits in. Because we don't make leaders sit through long, long blocking rehearsals. No, <laughs> no, it's true. Well, it, and Eric, I know, I know you're a musician. I, I started acting in school, not acting out. There's a difference. Before you, you did both there. of those things, to be clear. <laughs> I'm a very shy child, but I took acting, took drama, speech, yeah. Yeah. the music, voice training, all through college. And you become that role and and you learn a lot about yourself and just your physical self and what it looks like, how to make yourself bigger, how to make mm-hmm. yourself smaller. And, and when the whole imposter theory phraseology came out, it's like, what the hell? I've just been acting a role for 30 years. No, you know, it's not an imposter. It's just the role that I put on when I go into the office. Right. And, and it was never hard. It was just, okay, that that's the role of here. Yeah. Well, that yeah. was the methodology that you employed, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, to this day, I, I don't like conflict. I don't seek it out. I'm but in HR. It. it walks in my door. Mm-hmm. I don't have to seek it out. Right. And okay. My role is I, I embrace this conflict. <laughs> right up until you piss me off and then the real me comes out and- <laughs> laurel the agitator <laughs> oh no i told the guy last week because because i was the neutral person to interview this person from another part of the corporation oh boy <laughs> i did really well for eric eric for 22 minutes <laughs> this guy whining about how he was discriminated against mm trying to find out how he was discriminated against. So I was acting and I was being very kind and empathetic, which I'm not. And, and he was telling me how a software engineer, how he could be so much better paid somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I bit my tongue and I didn't tell him to please go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was acting in this very supportive role Right up until I, I kept going, what's your the origin of the discrimination? Tell me something illegal. And and he said, it's because I'm so much better than everybody else. Oh, <laughs> unfortunately, not a protected class better and than everyone. Said, Thank you. But it's not discrimination that we pay like crap. Yeah, <laughs> that's just poor choices on your part. Exactly. At that point, he hung up on me, and today he resigned. So we've we've had a very good outcome from that. Mm-hmm. So now I can be my own self and say, I'm sure it was Machiavellian, but it worked. <laughs> so I don't know where Machiavelli fits in your story, Elaine. But the, right, the, right about here. Yeah. <laughs> this is how what Eric plans for the conversation, what the speaker says, takes him along the path. And then what Laurel contributes takes hey. him. <laughs> it's 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 Thanks. the twist and turns and forks in the road that make this my favorite meeting of the week. Um so you know, Lori brought it up, Elaine. I just wanna I wanted to 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 get your, you know, sort of official take on it. How has that experience 
shaped how you show up as a as a leadership coach these days? When you say that experience, like all of that experience, that well, entire just, journey, just which, the, which part of the experience? Yeah, the, more specifically, the the focus on on acting and and your journey there to learn how to embody a character from the inside yeah, out. Yeah. How has that affected you as a coach? You just use a really important word, embody. I think it's about embodied presence. No, I went through, I'd been coaching for years and then I went through the ICF training and you know, I look at those competencies, but like, you know, embodied presence, like, oh, this is what I've been doing. So I'd say part of my superpower is my ability to listen and hold space, mm -hmm. right? I know how to create a safe place for people to feel safe enough to speak up, to be themselves, mm -hmm. to get a little bit more or maybe a lot more honest. Um, and I feel like that is so that's so integral to the coaching relationship. It's so integral to the leader follower relationship is, you know, because at its core, what is leadership? It is a relationship, right? It is a subjective relationship that is judged by both sides. But ultimately, the person who has the final say of whether or not this is an effective leadership relationship is the person who chooses to follow. So for me, I'd say, the the piece around performing it's also just the need for innate listening you know this and oh. like embodied listening at a deep level like you were saying before like you know there's so many different ways like as a musician you're listening to the other players oh, or yeah. like you know when i was in an orchestra and if i was in the violin section when the conductors needs to stop and work with the flutes and the oboes guess what we all shut up we don't pull out our phones and start like you are there you are present you are and you're trying to understand how what's going on integrates with your part so it's interesting i've had a lot of whether it's podcast hosts or people i've worked with like Alain, you're such an integrator and synthesizer and i think that part of being you know what i like about the performing arts you know so often in the business world we use sports as the main analogy for right. how we describe it's a game and what i really love is this idea of you know in the performing arts there is no winner or you could say everyone's a winner i mean the nature of what we're creating is we're all collaborating to produce this amazing outcome but it's a different mindset than like winners losers okay. you know i'm i'm the pitcher on the team you're the first baseman it isn't quite so linear and left-brained it's much more intuitive and integrative um so anyway i love that so much i i mean how how am i today years old when i realized that that is the more apt analogy for teams in a business context than sports yeah yeah I love that too. Yeah. There's a that. wonderful there's a wonderful book called The Art of Possibility by Ben Zander. I don't know if you know Ben Zander. He's the conductor. He was the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. And he's got a bunch of videos. He's he may be retired now. He's really quirky and eccentric and wonderful. And he he would do workshops and he would get the entire room singing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And he'd do all these things. But one of the things he talks about is as the conductor because he came into conducting as kind of this egocentric, I'm in charge, right? Oh, you know, you know this guy? I read back? an article about this this weekend. Okay, yeah, Tell so Ben Zander. So anyway, Ben Zander, so when he became the conductor, what he asked, he put index cards on all the musicians in the orchestra, their music stands, and said, I want your feedback. And they're all like, because, you know, traditionally, orchestral playing is very dictatorial hierarchy. I mean, what the conductor does goes. In fact, they were... Yeah. You know, and in fact, they rated yeah, like level, level, it's up. funny, they've rated levels of happiness in different professions and like orchestral player is one of the lowest because you just don't get a lot of <laughs> latitude and freedom and yeah. there's not much creativity. It's like basically read them, follow along and blend in. But anyway, but he was saying the amazing thing, it, it, again, he was whatever days old when he realized, wow, the conductor is the only person who doesn't make a sound. So it's not their job to do it. It's their job to draw it out of everyone else. You know, so anyway, so it's it's fascinating. I'm, and I'm not sure I'll have to look this article up and put it in the show notes because I read it this weekend. It was in the Wall Street Journal and it was about a conductor. And the crux of the article was about letting go. Mm -hmm. And so he was working a piece that he had written with the orchestra that he conducted. And there's a section in the middle that is really hard. And they worked it and worked it and worked it, and it just wasn't going anywhere. And he finally said, all right, let's try something. When we get to K in the score, position K, I'm going to stop conducting. And I'm going to just keep my hands down until we get to M, or where the out point was of that section, and then I'll pick it back up. 
and they had worked it for a week, two weeks, I don't know, a long time. And they tried this thing and he stopped and they played that section perfectly without him messing it up. And then he picked it back up when he had to and took them to the end of the piece. And it was a big epiphanal moment for him. And the article was, of course, about leadership and about when to step away and, you know, not try to force yeah. force the thing or, or conduct the passage that is really hard and trust yeah. and empower the people that you've employed to do those jobs to actually go do those jobs. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a pretty, pretty fascinating story. Um, because as leaders, letting go is is a thing we don't often do. Sure. Yeah, that's a. I was in the in high school. I was in the Colorado All State Choir, and you get your cassette tape of mm-hmm. your rehearsals. You know yeah. your, your rehearsal right. tracks. Right. So I dutifully learned my first alto parts, and you come together and you only have like a few hours of rehearsal with this whole new group and this new conductor director before you perform. Right. And yeah. There was a there was a song that was an a cappella song and we were having trouble staying on pitch, mm-hmm. kept going flat. And so uh he asked us to, and it was, it was, I don't know if it was the whole piece, but it was a su- substantial part of the piece where we started our, you know, had our initial notes, and he said, I want you to sing it in your head. Don't vocalize anything. I'll conduct, but I just want you to hear your part mm-hmm. in your head. And so we did our opening, you know, chord, and then he took us through whatever passage it was, 24 bars or whatever. And then he had us sing, right, the the final note, and we were spot on. Dead on. It was, it was such an interesting thing, right, about the the trust piece of like, yeah. you, you know your part, yeah. and I'll keep the beat for you. You just, right, we just got to keep it all together. <laughs> like everybody just contributes what you already know how to do and, and we're good. So yeah, a kind of a variation on the theme of, of the trusting the individual to, to know what they're doing and, and get to the right outcome. That was very powerful as a 17 year old, you know, I was just blown away. <laughs> That's, amazing. That's terrific. Yeah. Um, I also was going to bring up, you, you talked about a follower, right. And that, that leadership piece about it's not a a leader assessing their own value, competence, abilities, impact. It's, it's what the followers Mm -hmm. think for, to a large degree. Right. And so that was interesting that Gallup, you know, they have their strength-based, you know, research and learning your strengths and strength-based leadership and all of that. But they had a whole different spin on it where they, they developed this whole thing about the followers needs. Right. And so it was it was asking the followers, what do you care about? There's all of this stuff about what leaders should do and what makes a good leader and all of this. And so they turned the research on the followers and they they came up with right the the consensus on the four things were um trust, compassion, stability, and hope. Mm. Right. And that that those were the the four needs of the followers. And so then the the strength-based leadership is how do you how do you meet them? where the, where they are how do you provide what does compassion look like what does stability look like what does hope look like trust obviously is always the secret sauce in in any relationship but yeah, um, yeah so I, I enjoyed you know learning that framework from the followers perspective too so say those four things again Lori just so we have them on record yeah trust compassion stability and hope and hope yeah. yeah, we'll 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 see how that overlaps with with Mr. Hunkins' framework here. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that, Lori. The sense of, and it's also recognizing that for folks that compassion, stability, hope, and trust will look different. You know, there's not a yeah. one size fits all to everything yeah. within mm-hmm. that. You know, it's very contextual. What does it look like in a startup compared to? Yeah, a, yeah, you know multinational yeah. conglomerate kind of thing. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting is I know I was talking with a colleague about this. We both coach and we both do talks and we're talking about how often, and you probably have had both had this experience and you as well, Laurel, where is if you ask someone, if you like are in a coaching session and then you say, so what really stood out for you? What, like what really landed for you and what they share is complete, like, really? That was, that, that's, right. that's, that was a thing? that's, that's the thing. <laughs> I, I, 
because again, otherwise we tend to fall into the advice trap. You should do this because that's what it worked for me. If it worked for me, do it this way. And right. we're, you know, we're shackled to our own frame of reference. And so by the willingness to offer things out and let people pick and choose again, trusting that adults are well-intentioned autonomous beings who, if they can connect to a, a shared sense of purpose, will give all of that discretionary effort, you know, and they want to come up with their own solutions, but their solutions are not going to be your solution or my solution. It's going to be their solution. And that's, and that's okay. okay. And that is okay. Exactly. Yeah. Celebrate that. Exactly. You don't have to do it all. Yeah. yeah. I dropped a link in the chat to just a kind of a landing page around those um, followers oh, cool. need on the Gallup website. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, I want to get into the book and, you know, Ellen, when I, when I get a book, the first thing I do, because I've written a book is mm -hmm. I go and I, I look to see who wrote all the opening blurbs. Mm -hmm. Like who did he corral into writing a blurb for him? Right. And, you know, the lead blurb here is Dan Pink, who's mm -hmm. one of mm -hmm. my favorites. I mm -hmm. thought that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. He got not only Kuzis, but Posner, he got both of them. <laughs> so leadership challenge is is a, a staple Brain in book. my repertoire. Yeah. So loved seeing that. But Lori, I don't know if you know this, but Sidney Finkelstein, what? an emeritus uh, alumnus of 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 the bartender here, and Lori's professor at the the Tuck uh, okay, professional yeah. program. Yeah, um, he wrote uh, Super Bosses Super along bo with yeah. a, whole, a whole bunch of others. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. Yeah. Small world, man. So I saw Sid from the Sid cast in there. And that made me really happy because mm -hmm. yeah. he was a phenomenal guest. If you haven't seen it, check it out. TCB episode with Sid Finkelstein. It was fantastic. <laughs> nice. So, nice. So, cool. so LA, you, you did research <laughs> leading up to the writing of this book that led you to believe that the current state of leadership was less than stellar. Mm hmm. Yes, it's true. So, what were some of the things you <laughs> learned in that process that you said, oh, boy, this problem is probably a little meatier than I maybe have initially thought? Well, you know, it's interesting because it's certainly meatier, but it was I think I had the hunch it was meaty already. And here's why. So the book was not again, just for for the listeners here. My background is not I'm not an author who sits in his office and writes like, what do I think about leadership in, in abstraction? All of this came out of me being a practitioner. So I started back in 1997 as a leadership trainer, management trainer, facilitator, working in, let's call them Fortune 500 type companies, mostly mid to large companies. And for the first number of years, I mean, I had no business experience, none. Okay. So I was just asking, I was ran like three or four different experiential training programs, but I would meet with clients and ask them about them and their business. And what I started doing, because I was working with eight to 10 to 12 different clients a month, I was on the road all the time for the first number, like 10 years. And what I started seeing, surprise, surprise, were patterns, right? So it turned <laughs> out that the like all the best leaders tended to do things in common and all the worst leaders tended to have things in common. And so I was studying all this. And then, so I had kind of my gut instincts and then I started doing some research. Yeah. And then the research kind of corroborated the evidence, which is in general, the state of leadership is poor. And in the book, I cite a couple of different things, but so for example, the study that I, I mentioned in the book, and there's, you know, many people are familiar with like the Edelman trust index, for example, mm -hmm. and EY put out a thing, but basically about 50% of employees tend to trust their employers. Right. And that number kind of goes up and down a little bit, but still we're talking it's half. That's a significant shortfall. Um, you know, about 31% of people believe their leaders communicate well. That came from Ketchum Communications. And about 23% of people think their leaders overall lead well. Say, and so pause right there. Say that one again. Yeah. 23% of people believe that their leaders lead well. Only wow. 23%. Wow. And so I have shared that number and I've gotten that very similar reaction from many groups over these last couple of years. And people say, how can that be? <laughs> I mean, don't people tell their leaders that you suck? I'm like, think time out. Let's just think about that for a second. In most hierarchical organizations, which your leader is usually a higher on the hierarchy than you are, how come if they have not, again, assuming they don't lead well, it's a pretty good chance they haven't created the safety where they're really asking was, for open and honest feedback. I was gonna Therefore, say, yeah, if no. you were to say that, that would be called a career, career limiting, limiting move. move. <laughs> so you don't do it and you think it, you know it, your colleagues think it, know it, but no one says it. And because the organization doesn't really do much about it, 
it festers. And I am amazed. I mean, I think this ties into, again, Gallup says that something like 14 to 15% of people are fully engaged at work. I mean, I think these numbers, there's no accident that you have similar numbers in these areas, because let's mm -hmm. face it, if you have to kind of get on with getting on, or, you know, you're your your daily mantra is it is what it is mm -hmm. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. if that's your daily mantra you're just kind of getting through it you know so, and then you know, they call that quiet quitting these days right and so in any event yeah the state of leadership is pretty poor and most people are notoriously bad with self-awareness right so most of us tend like in much in the way we think in the 95 of us think we're above average drivers you know if we had a room of 100 leaders and said raise your hand if you think that you're a decent leader, I, I, my, my guess would be the majority, if not close to 100% would say, because of course, everyone intends to, no one's waking up thinking, sure. I want to make people's life miserable today. No one's okay. thinking that okay. they, yeah. they, they just happen to do it. And they don't even know how or why. Um, and it's because you know, they, they have inherited all sorts of bad habits that they don't even realize they have. And as abysmal as those numbers are, and they're abysmal, yes. right? Um, I have to believe those are underrepresented because if I'm a disengaged employee, the last thing I'm going to do is fill out a fucking survey about how effective my boss is or how fucking engaged I am because I'm yeah. not. Yeah, exactly. Right? So the people that did fill them out are probably not the worst off yeah. in those situations. Yeah. So those numbers are even bigger. Yeah. So you identified a problem. And you, you, you developed a framework. You call the book Cracking the Leadership Code. Why do you call it that? What are you cracking here? What am I cracking is because, well, it goes back to what I said before, this idea that the code are patterns of behavior, is that I believe that at the end of the day, leadership is a performing arts, to go back to what we were talking about earlier. And what I mean specifically by leadership as a performing art, it's what we say and what we do. Now, obviously, our mindset, our beliefs, our attitudes inform that. But the fruit of all of that labor is what we say and what we do. And so cracking the code is if we can reverse retrofit this and think, okay, so what are the behaviors? What are the things that we need to say and do that will then net out? Now, again, you can't fake this. You can try to fake it, but people are going to smell out BS for what it is. Um, but if you're genuine, like, okay, so what are the meta skill behaviors that people mm -hmm. need to do in order to be successful? And this all came out organically. I started blogging in 2011. And I, over the course of the next five years, before I had about, blogging was cool. Before <laughs> blogging was cool. Um, and I, over the course of the next five or so years, I had about 300 blog posts and I started reviewing them all, looking for common themes and meta trends. And what I found were, I kept showing up like, what am I writing about? You know, what am I writing about? And what I found were the three secrets to building strong leaders, looking at what they were. So what are these three behavioral meta skills of which there are are sub skills that you can actually do. Um, the first one is connection. So what great leaders do is they recognize, I don't care if you work in high tech or pharmaceuticals or manufacturing, you are in the human being business and you need to connect with human beings because, you know, as you all know, so much of the research shows that, you know, at the end of the day, the number one thing that makes people feel engaged and productive at work is do you feel valued and cared for by another your immediate supervisor you know which is another another human being right yeah. which means that you know we are all in the people business and i oftentimes tell groups when i'm working with them is realize that you know we get so hung up on all of our kpis right our metrics our key performance indicators and realizing all of those kpis are only lagging indicators of the behaviors of people yeah. Right. 100%. That's all that it's what they are, but they're much easier to measure because it's like we think that humans if we are messy. Measure, humans are really messy. So the first skill is connection. And there's a whole bunch of things that go into things you can do to be a better connector. The second meta skill is communication. So basically, what are you doing to make sure that people are walking away with mutual and shared understanding? And I like to tell people that you should assume the default setting for human communication is misunderstanding and, yes. act, and act appropriately. Right? 100%. And yeah. Act appropriately, right? And the reason that's so important is because shared understanding becomes the platform on which we're going to make all of our decisions. So if yeah. we have a solid foundation, we're going to make good decisions. If we have a weak, wobbly foundation, we're going to make some poor decisions. So what are you doing to ensure you are making everyone walk away on the same page? Easier said than done, because there's all sorts of cognitive biases that would lead us astray. And then the third meta skill is collaboration. So as leaders, we are 
chief architects. We are designers of environments. And um, I got some really great ideas from the world of behavioral economics around this. I thought that, you know, mm -hmm. there's things that we can do. You know, so for example, if you want people to eat smaller portions, serve your food on smaller plates, for right. example, right? So, so, so what are you as a leader doing to nudge or tweak the environment so that people can perform at their best? And what I found in my research was that there's four key elements that need to be in place for people to perform at their best. And they're all important. One is safety. So that's going to be physical, emotional, psychological safety. The next one is energy. If you have an environment where people are energized rather than drained. The third one is around ownership, that people have a sense of autonomy, that they can control their own work environment and work towards it. And the fourth is around purpose, that people believe that what they're doing matters. And so if we go back and look at connection, communication, and collaboration as those three meta skills, what I really wanted in this book was to get across the sense that if you want to be a better leader, don't worry about being a better leader because you can't really do that. What you can do is focus on be a better connector, be a better communicator, and be a better collaborator. You do those things, you will be a better leader. And mm -hmm. so the idea is to kind of pull in a lot of research, but put it in a way that is hopefully elegantly simple. And, you know, my target audience isn't necessarily interested, like you said, thousands of boring business books. Like I wanted nice. something that was engaging, practical, story-driven, yet people had walk away specific action items and yeah. tools by which they could then go, oh, that's a really good idea. I can do that tomorrow yeah. or even this afternoon. And so that's really kind of the, the origins of kind of where things came from. And then the fourth section of the book, which precedes the three C's of connection, communication, collaboration, is context. Also starts with a C. But uh, what I really wanted to get into was some of the history of how did we get here at this point in, you know, the late 20, or I should say, moving from the 20th century into the 21st century, really taking a look back at how we have inherited so many bad habits of the generations of leaders that have come before us. And unless we stop and recognize where we come from, we can't change to where we want to go to, because it is a very different roadmap. I mean, particularly yeah. with the pandemic. I mean, the funny thing is the book actually was published on March the 24th, 2020, which was <laughs> the week the world went crazy um, and shut down. And so people said, oh, it's so prescient that you wrote these things. Did you know this? No, I didn't know it was coming. But the fact is, these are fundamental principles and they are timeless and they are just even that much more important in this post-pandemic world that we're trying to figure out as we go than it ever was before. So I love how the focus on behaviors, right? Because we always, we talk about that a lot with, with our leadership and, and with employees around giving and receiving feedback, right? Yeah. But vague statements about you did really well or you really yeah. screwed that up completely without value and yeah. just damages the relationship. Completely. It's it's behavior. What did you do or say? What did you not do or say that had an impact? Not your intention, yeah. but an impact, right? Yeah. And and closing that intention impact gap is always the the goal, right? And so having having all of this put in context of behavior because it's, then it's not a judgment on your character. It's not a right. judgment on your motivation necessarily, right? I mean, it, like you said, you can't fake it. People will figure that out, right? They'll okay. sniff out the BS. But but generally speaking, like my, I, I want to do a good job and I don't mm -hmm. know what to do. Well, it's, it's behavior, do and say, right? Completely, completely. And Lori, as you say that, what that reminds me of for those that aren't familiar, like in the world of acting, if you're acting in a play, when you're rehearsing the play, the director's giving notes at the end of a rehearsal. You have like pen sometimes right. depending on the pages and pages of notes. And you have to recognize, first of all, these notes aren't about me, Alain. They're about Alain, the actor, the character. It's the character right. in the play. And it isn't how I feel or don't feel. It isn't the point. This is feedback. We're trying to make a collective work product that's better. Mm -hmm. And you just get really used to that. And I like to say that actors have this incredible paradox of on the one hand, you have to have a thick enough skin. You don't take any of this stuff personally, but you have to have a thin enough skin that you have to let it in and actually absorb and make the appropriate changes. Change. And that's just, but the, but the expectation, of course, like why would you have a rehearsal without notes? Like that would be Right. Insane. You would never do like everybody just that's, walks away and goes, that's, that's all like, right. That's well, that was okay. And you just think about how often that I we forgot just, those six lines. <laughs> just how often in the business world, like we finish up a meeting and we never talk about it again. We never talk about process of what went well, how could it get better? And it's so interesting because I do a lot of coaching where sometimes I will sit in on you know leaders' meetings and give specific feedback. 
And I have, I can get paid, but it's all about specificity. Like you're saying, Lauren, it's all about observation. This is what you did. So for example, when you started the meeting and you jumped into the first point, you didn't stop and give the big picture up front. Right. It, next time would be even better if you gave the big picture. So everyone had that moment of context to be on the same page before you jump into that. Oh, right. Yeah. So that that's something you can do. That's a very tangible, tactical thing you can do. So yeah, that's what made me think about that, Lori, was that sense is very connected to that. Thanks. That's awesome. Well, you know, I, I love I love the model. Um, and as a practitioner of workplace relationships, right? I mean, that that is what makes Sky Team Sky Team. It's all about relationships. So the connection component in your in your framework um is all about empathy, right? And yeah. <clears throat> empathy is your is your connection superpower. How do you become more empathetic. You know, I work a lot in technology with folks who they were really good software developers, really good engineers. And as a reward for being a good engineer, they're they leading people. Yes. And they kind of made they nobody happy about that. Not even right? here. Yeah. <laughs> they're, not, they're not super checked into their whole, you know, empathetic toolkit. So what, what, sort of quick words of wisdom do you have for folks who are trying to build that empathy muscle and be a more empathetic leader? Great, great question. So there's a couple of places I would start. The fact is, as human beings, even if you're an engineer, by the way, you're still a human, <laughs> I hate to break it, um, you're wired to be empathetic. And the, and the fact is, you do have empathy. The thing is, the challenge for many of us is that we have empathy in different levels of concentric circles. The idea is that those that we love and care for the most, maybe hopefully it's like your kids maybe, um, <laughs> kind of are in that circle. Uh, maybe close friends are a little bit further out. But as you get further and further away, we have less and less empathy. Now put it into a work context where we now have deadlines and problems and time, you know, limited pressures and all resources and hierarchy and status and ego. Whoa, suddenly empathy can go out the way the wayside very quickly. So the, the first place I would start is, you know, if I think about, you know, I, I write about this in the book too, like what are the biggest barriers to leading with empathy? And I think for many people in a work setting, the number one is time. Right. Number one is time because we are always under this pressure. And, you know, I'm not going to go into all the brain science here, but basically when we're having that kind of pressure, we are activating our older parts of the brain, which means that our prefrontal cortex, which is the creative problem solving innovative part goes offline because it doesn't get to compete with the cognitive resources. So if you're sure. in a highly aroused stress place, you are not in a good sh in good place to really understand how people are ticking. Um, so the first thing is, and, you know, and many of our organizations, you know, our core, you know, we might have a core competence is drive for results or bias for action. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not against results. I'm not against action, but we shouldn't be driving for results at the expense of driving over people who are trying yeah. to work for with us to deliver those results. So some, so the first thing I would do is first of all, check in with your body. This is actually very much Ooh. of a somatic experience. So I would say, take a breath or two or 20, right? To start to slow down because while digital work may travel at the speed of light, humans travel at the speed of humans. And so we need to learn how to slow down a little bit because one of the things that I find a lot of leaders do is we confuse efficiency with effectiveness and there is a time and a place to go slow. And so when you're checking in with somebody else, first you gotta get yourself more embodied. And I'm sure you you all do this as coaches, right? This sense of like, what do you need to do to prepare yourself for a coaching session? Same thing as a leader, what do you need to do to prepare yourself for a, a conversation? First, I need to kind of embody the presence of I have time and space to actually listen to this person as opposed to having my agenda that I need to steamroll and get through, you know, and it's always interesting if you listen to people's language. I remember I was working with a woman who was giving, she was the head of marketing for a company and she was giving a marketing presentation to all the leaders. And I asked her, she was part of the way through. I said, how do you think it's going? Going great. And how do you know? Oh, it's because I only have eight slides left and we still have 12 minutes. <laughs> that, that was her measure of it was going Yikes. great. Right. It's like this is just a thing to get done. Yeah. And unfortunately, too often, you know, this is going to sound so obvious when I say it, but too often we look at other people as tasks to get off of our task list. Sure. And we have to recognize that, you know, part of it is when you want to empathize, you need to connect with them at the human to human level. So take some time 
to engage with people just to get to know them as people, right? <laughs> and so that isn't just small talk. It's like find out what's interesting to them. And I do, I call that listening with purpose, which is very different than the way most people listen, right? So listening so, to respond, right? right? Listening so to respond or listening I, to correct that, or fix. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's listening with purpose. It's like my agenda here is to connect. It is to engage. It's to make you feel valued, which means that I probably should be doing no more than 15% of the talking, right? I should be asking some really juicy open-ended questions and then shutting up and being present to you that you go, wow, I feel like there's no one else in the entire world here except you with me right now. I mean, the classics, everyone talks about Bill Clinton that way, right? If you, I'm sure you've all heard stories that everyone said, like, doesn't matter. You feel like he is the only one in the room. Like, that is a gift. But it doesn't mean that we can't all flex those muscles a little bit more. So the first thing I would do is breathe, be present, park your agenda, and set an intention of my goal here is to connect and have that be your sole agenda for the next two minutes, Mm -hmm. ask a really great, juicy, open-ended question, and then shut up and listen, and then affirm and validate in your response. And I I was just going to say what I love, because I, not to pick on engineers, maybe it's pick on engineers, (laughs) right? A a lot of times there's this need for absolute accuracy or absolute, the right answer or the right, or I know more about this than you do. And let me Mm -hmm. tell you. And, and what I'm always reminding people is that Somebody can have a completely different perspective and be deeply passionate about that objective. And you can still acknowledge that that is true for them and they are deeply passionate about it without agreeing with them. That's not the point of this exchange. The point of this exchange is for them to hear heard and understood, not for you to agree with them. And you can get so much further if you can just cover the acknowledgement of this is what's true for you, right? And yeah. and resist the urge to correct or well, actually, right? That's the exactly. that we do. And yeah. it's hard because it's kind of counterintuitive. It goes against how many of us were educated, right? In school, there was a right answer. There's a wrong answer. So we get very good at binary thinking. And mm-hmm. as leaders, we have to learn how to embrace paradox and, and paint in shades of gray. Yeah. You know, yeah. we really do. I Ellen, love it. And we hire you to go to Congress. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Binary thinking. Well, there's a whole lot there. Good yeah. luck with that one. So <clears throat> I've collected so many things here today. I've got listening with purpose. I've got digital work moves at the speed of light, but humans mm-hmm. move at the speed of humans. Mm-hmm. I love that we're shackled to our own frames of reference. And my favorite, kindling the fire of brilliance. (laughs) I love it. His name is Alain Hunkins, and the book is Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. If this whet your appetite, Alain, where can people find you and where can they acquire this fantastic work? Fantastic. Yeah. Best place to find me is Alain Hunkins, A-L-A-I-N-H-U-N-K-I-N-S.com. There is a page that's resources. It's got a link where you can buy the book wherever books are sold, including the big place that keeps Jeff Bezos happy. <laughs> um, and uh, and if you like it, leave a review. It's certainly there too. And if you're also, if you listen this far into the recording, you are now part of the end of the Corporate Bartender Episode 174 Club. Um, it is, um, you can email me directly at Alain at AlainHunkins.com and I'll answer all queries received. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for being here with us today. This conversation was fantastic. I think we're going to need a part two because I've got deeper questions that I didn't even get to and we didn't have the interference of 12 other people on the call today. So it was a good... And I only interfered once. I know you did and it was a beautiful interference that you did do. All right, let's get into our funny things, good feel story and silly, silly cocktail. And then let's go have some dinner because I have stuff prepped and in the fridge ready to be grilled. That's Aren't right. you the overachiever? I know. Funny thing <laughs> number one, when you sneeze so hard, your mustache changes lips. <laughs> that guy did that on purpose and I that thought that was hilarious. Funny. Some facial art right there. This is uh, this next one is from the Sage Wisdom Department. I golfed with a hilarious 78-year-old man, and he was dishing out life tips the whole time. The most dope guy I've ever met. He tells me after the round, don't talk to me in the parking lot. My wife's picking me up. 
She thinks I went deaf five years ago. What a legend. <laughs> uh, funny thing number three, just told a guy talking on his phone in the library to shut the fuck up, and everyone applauded me, so I told them to shut the fuck up, too. <laughs> Uh, funny thing number four um, when the DJ drops thriller at the wedding (laughs) and funny thing number five my favorite funny thing of today is a Hulk Hogan one and it goes along with this song (laughs) (laughs) oh hey there brother <laughs> All right, today's good feel story is uh it's checking in on one that we ran a couple of years ago. It's about the oldest lobster fisherman in Maine. Yeah. Finally tonight, one woman who proves age is just a number. CBS's Steve Hartman goes on the road with a 103-year-old lobster woman who shows no signs of stopping. Hmm. Max Oliver is an old salt, but to his crewmate on this lobster boat, Max is but a child, her child. As we first reported a couple years ago, then 101-year-old Virginia Oliver was Maine's oldest lobster fisherman. Three days a week, May through November, you could find Virginia out here on Penobscot Bay, tackling one of the most hazardous jobs in the country. Have they ever gotten you? Oh, <laughs> Once she got cut so badly, she needed seven stitches. And the doctor said to me, what are you out there lobstering for? Good question. And I said, because I want to. I think you might have thought that was a little too dangerous for somebody well, of your age. I don't care what he thought. Clearly. <laughs> Virginia had been lobstering on and off since the age of seven. She used to go out with her father. It was man's work then, not another girl in sight. But nine decades later, she was the master of the sea. After Max hauled in the traps, Virginia measured the lobsters, Don't go tossed out the small ones, throw it away. and then tamed the claws of the keepers. Who's the boss out there? I am. <laughs> she don't give up. What would she say if you said, oh, I'm ready to retire? You better have something wrong with you. You better have something wrong with you. <laughs> it's been two years since our visit. And I'm happy to report that almost nothing has changed. Later this month, at the age of 103, Virginia will begin her 95th lobstering season. There is a children's book now, and she's gained some celebrity. But Virginia remains the same humble lobster woman with the same retirement plan. When I die. When you die. Yeah. (laughs) In other words, no time soon. Steve Hartman. On the road in Rockland, Maine. 103 One woman years proved- old. That's incredible. Her, That's bananas. her sweet voice is like all of my aunts in Maine. <laughs> yep. Line them all up. <laughs> so I pulled that okay. one for you, Lori, because we're going to be you. in Maine next Saturday for a week <laughs> of decompression and relaxation. And I like, pulled this and- one for uh, Right. I pulled this one for you too, Lori, because we watched the hot dog eating contest on July 4th. We happened to be sitting at a bar having tacos for lunch, and they were showing the Nathan's July 4th hot dog eating contest where the reigning champion has a personal best record of eating 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. This one seemed much more appealing to me. Um, This... Cocktail. Today's semi-quarantine cocktail is called Always Have Pie. It's a riff on the Key Lime cocktail. You'll need a little pineapple juice. New York City has hot dogs. Key West has this. A little bit of fresh lime juice. It took Josh Mogul three minutes and 35 seconds to eat a whole pie. You'll need a little whipped cream vodka. I didn't know that was even a thing, but apparently that's a thing. When Josh was asked about his strategy, he said... Always have pie in my mouth, (laughs) which breaks it down to the most basic of strategies. Uh, Two ounces of rum chata. The day before this pie eating contest, the organized organizers certified a 13 foot key lime pie as the world's largest. 
a couple of drops of green food coloring. And I want to see Josh eat that 13 foot pie. (laughs) That's, that's all I got for you today. Thank you so much. Nothing but gratitude for you. Alan, thanks for being with us today. We will get this episode out in a couple weeks and we will see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you had a good time and learned a thing or two at today's happy hour, please share it with your friends. If you want to join our tribe, head on over to skyteam.cloud forward slash TCB or email us at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again. And remember, you've always got friends at the Corporate Bartender.